Restorative justice, restorative practices. How does it really work in schools? Or how can a business leader address conflict and culture issues within their company? We've been implementing and training restorative practices for over 10 years. We invite you to join us in discussion around classroom and community circles, conferences, and implementation strategies. Just like you, we live this every day and always strive for what's best for students, staff, and communities. We are the RJ Solution. Join us for an entertaining and informative podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode three of the RJ Solution podcast. I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. (laughs) That's easy to remember. I know, I feel like I stuttered or something. (laughs) So on on the last episode, we had talked about some tools that you can do during this, um, during the remote learning time to really connect or kind of restore relationships with students, given that we are in a situation where we couldn't have in-person learning. Um, but we did want to continue on with kind of, uh, you know, what we did from the first episode, which is to kind of give a generalized overview of what is restorative practices, what are the different components of it, and kind of go from there. So um, really in this conversation is talking, you know, we need to start talking about why we need to rethink discipline in the first place. Well, I think that you and I wouldn't be talking about this and y'all out there wouldn't be listening if it wasn't for the fact that it's not working. The way that we tra- traditionally do discipline is just not working well. Um, and as we suspend and expel students, that leads to the dropout rate, and then the dropout rate leads to the school-to-prison pipeline. I don't think that this is any secret to anyone. Um, and we also have disproportionality in school discipline, whether it is based on gender, race, or whether a student um, has a dis- you know, uh, disability of some kind. So, you know, in Colorado here, um, especially being the state of Columbine, after Columbine occurred, what we realized is that we moved to really exclusionary practices and moved to a mindset of zero tolerance. And so if a student made a threat, um, I mean, understandably, if a student brought a weapon to school, but if a student made a threat, the next we would expel. Mm-hmm. And that was our zero tolerance mindset. And so then after a while, we went back and we looked at that and said, okay, is this zero tolerance mindset, has it made schools safer? And has it changed the behavior of students? And on both counts, the answer is no. So fortunately, the pendulum has moved back in the other direction, and we hope that it rests in the middle, uh, which would be a mindset of restorative practices and getting away from exclusionary practices. So what we, what we look at in kind of separating the different philosophies of discipline, um, we look at what's called the window of social control. And this was um, discussed originally in when we were discussing discussing um, I think it was in a book called The Effectiveness of a Prison and Parole System. But the the window of social control kind of breaks things down into four different categories. So when you're looking at how you respond to a discipline situation, you can either respond in in one of four ways. The first way um, is 
if you were to respond in a punitive way where you have a high level of control and a low level of support, that would be where you would be doing things to someone. So, you know, the best example I can give is if, um, you know, you're a teacher in a classroom and you create the rules and if the kids don't follow the rules, you kick them out. Okay, we would consider this kind of like an authoritarian mindset. The next one is neglectful. So neglectful mindsets or philosophy, this would typically be where you have a low level of control and a low level of support. Um, where you're just not doing anything. And, you know, I would see this as irresponsible. And I, I'm sure, you know, as you're thinking about this, you have a picture in your head of a classroom where you've walked in and had a neglectful teacher, right? So the one where there's like a chair flying through the, um, flying through the classroom and the teacher is sitting behind the computer. Um, so you can have, you can have that kind of uh, position. The other one that you can have is what I consider to be permissive. And this is where you have a high level of support and a low level of control. Um, and this is where you're doing things for kids or for people. So I call this the friend box. Okay. And a lot of times this is, you know, brought out of good intentions. So like we feel bad for kids and so we don't want them to receive consequences for something because we know they had like a shitty day at home or, um, you know, so we're going to say, Oh, I know you told me to F off, but I'm going to let you, I'm going to let it slide this time. Um, and so just kind of thinking about that as like the friend mindset and really the goal is what we want to do is we want to get to the restorative box, which is a high level of support and a high level of control, um, where we're doing things with other people. So it's not that we're doing things to people or for people, but we're doing them with them. And, you know, this works just the same as if you're a really effective leader. So I love and I care about you a lot because I care about you a lot. I'm going to give you a ton of support, um, but I'm also going to hold you to a high level of expectation and standards. And I, my support that I give you is going to allow you to reach those expectations, but those expectations aren't going to be minimized because I love and care about you. And, you know, the one thing I want to say about the restorative box is unless I'm just a loony but Kirksey you're probably the same and most funny and most people are the same but no one when they are emotionally hijacked is in the restorative box (laughs) so you know I I do what I can every day to think with a restorative mindset with my work and my kids Um, but when I'm emotionally hijacked or I am not in control of my emotions I'm never thinking in the restorative box so what what you need to do as an adult is really make sure that you are in control of your emotions so that you can be in the restorative box um, and manage situations from that from that window no, that's great. And, you know, a couple of things that I think about as you talk about that is, for instance, in the permissive box, I think that that's a trap that we get into, especially in um, Title I schools, where mm-hmm. we um, look at our students who have legitimately experienced a lot of trauma, um, could currently be experiencing trauma. They have a difficult life. And so then we go to the place of, you know, I know stuff is, is really hard on you, so, you know, don't worry about it, you know, 
you don't need to turn that paper in or, you know, give me one paragraph, not three or something like that. And I think that that's a really bad trap that we get into sometimes that really we are doing our students the very best for them when we say to them, you know what, I get it and I'm going to listen. But I also have some high expectations for you because I know that if I set the bar here, that you absolutely positively can reach it. Um, and so sometimes looking at that restorative box is kind of like you explained it, Jen, is kind of looking at what the others are not. Um, sometimes we get into difficult schools and um, we might have the attitude of, you know what, you're wild and you haven't had any rules, therefore I'm gonna make sure that you understand the, what the rules are and I'm gonna enforce them on you. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, I think that if we just took a pause and thought about it, um, we could see circumstances, not people, I don't want anybody to think about specific people, but just circumstances where we have seen maybe some of these uh, less effective techniques play out. Yeah, and I, I think remembering, too, and just being, a, like, I mean, self-awareness is the most important thing, but looking at all of those boxes, and no one, by the way, typically is naturally restorative, like I said before, so which box do you typically fall in fall into naturally? Is it the punitive box? Is it the permissive box? Or is it the neglectful box? And, you know, I think most of the time, one, each of us have one main box that we fall into, and then, you know, sometimes we have maybe a secondary one depending on the situation but just having the awareness to know that um you know this is the box that i fall into and recognizing it and saying you know if i'm more punitive how can i provide a higher level of support so that i'm restorative or if i'm permissive how can i provide higher expectations and continue with the same support so that i can actually be restorative and not permissive Yep, I think that's a really good point, especially figuring out, because I know that for me, if I'm not restorative, I fall into neglectful. <laughs> Just got to be that honest. That explains everything. <laughs> it Just does. It, ex <laughs> it explains so very much. All right, moving <laughs> along. So, so when we're talking about, you know, what is restorative practices, really the definition that we go off of is that restorative practices is a is a practice or a mindset, um, not a curriculum or a program that's really rooted in the belief that wrongdoing is best addressed through identifying the harm and then taking steps to repair that harm. Yeah, and, and RJ, restorative practices rests on the five R's, whether it's restorative justice in the criminal justice system or restorative practices in schools, and that would be respect responsibility, repair, relationship, and reintegration. Now I'm not gonna define the first four for you. You can, if you'd like to, Jen. Um. <laughs> Carry on. I know, your, I know your, your favorite one is the reintegration one. Yeah, so reintegration. So if you think about it, um, reintegration is where we have messed up in schools because we will send a student out of the class and or actually a better example is that when we suspend students so we'll suspend a student maybe for a day two days or put them in in school suspension and then when they come back into the classroom 
all of the rest of these are very important. We haven't done anything to repair the harm that has occurred um, that led to the student's suspension, and I just want to equivocate that by saying the harm probably went both ways uh, between teacher and student or student and student. But the big thing that we don't do is we don't reintegrate students back into the community. So community is a huge motivator and I think one of the most important things to us as human beings um, because if you think about it, if you are out of community with your spouse or your parents or your friends or your neighbors, can you eat? Can you sleep? I mean, I just want you to think about that for a minute, how important community is in your life. And so when we take a student and we suspend them or expel them, or if we send a student to a corner for timeout or send them out of the class for a class period, what have we done either formally or informally to reintegrate that student back into the community? And the more we send the students out of the community, the less likely they're gonna feel a part of it and then when students don't feel like they're part of a community, do they have any buy-in with our rules? Mm -hmm. Are right. they gonna follow, are they gonna follow the culture? So what, what restorative practices really is about in schools, it is about resolving conflict and repairing harm, but I would throw up on the marquee just as big as those two, that how do we reintegrate students and build a sense of community? Yeah, and really kind of like working from um, Beverly Titles Framework and Resolutionaries, Inc., when they created kind of like those five R's, really that the, the foundation of that work is in your relationship and your respect um, amongst the students, and then using that responsibility component to kind of do some of that repair and accountability work. And then, like you were saying, once, once you get into a place where someone needs to be reintegrated back into that community, actually doing the work to um, reintegrate them back is, is incredibly powerful. Yep, absolutely. It is a huge part of the work. So wanted to just take a couple minutes and, and talk about, and Kirksey, maybe you can do this, but talk about um, some of the success that we've seen as building administrators in buildings where we have implemented implemented different components of restorative practices over the years. And just to maybe provide a couple of examples of situations that we've done this in. Um, I know our the current district that we're working in right now, uh, one of the things that we really focused on in this last year is instead of doing out of school suspensions for uh, K through three students is really focused on implementing restorative practices and processes. And, and by doing that, and certainly there were other, you know, components that um, impacted this as well, this percentage as well. But, uh, you know, we did a huge push for this, but reduced this really reduced out of school suspensions for K through three by 41%, which I think is pretty, um, pretty powerful. No, that's huge. Well, and when we were um, at a large high school in the Denver metro area, after implementing restorative practices for one semester, um, fights were reduced by over 50%. And that was going from 38 fights in a semester to 18 fights in a semester. So I think that that really 
demonstrates the preventative value of restorative practices, mm -hmm. that those conflicts were resolved before the fight even started. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then, it, you know, we were at another middle school and um, this this specific middle school was in turnaround status. And we, at the end of the year, um, did a survey where we really wanted to dig into how restorative practices um, impacted the culture and climate of the building at the end of the year. And I think one of the, the best statistics out of the whole um, the whole survey was really around this and well two things first thing is that 95 percent of the students or of the staff members that worked in the building felt like it impacted the culture and climate for the better and the thing that we like always say is <laughs> what do 95 percent of staff members ever agree on besides like a day off right so <laughs> right. we felt like that was a pretty um a pretty good you know, way to consider that we had been successful. And then the other one is, you know, cause we get this question a lot is, you know, when you do formal conferences with students, how many students repeat those same behaviors? Um, mm -hmm. And so we tracked the formal conferences that year and had 113 and out of 113 conferences, only four of those students continued with the same behavior. And we considered that, like if we had had five or six conferences with a student that that they were continuing so there was only four students who had had six or more conferences um that year so i think that you know when you're doing those formal conferences that that you can really um have some incredible success in repairing and then moving forward with a solution that works for everyone involved Absolutely. And, you know, I never thought of this of all the times that we have brought that those statistics forward. I mean, I'm not very good at math, but if you flip that you, on its you head. You were never a good math teacher. <laughs> no, I never was a good math teacher, but I was better than you. Anyway, <laughs> but if you flip that statistic on its head and just using simple math and not picky math, that would be like 97% of the students that we did formal conferences with that it had a positive effect and led to um, some absolutely observable change in growth in the students and so uh, you know then I think to myself of all the goofy stuff that we implement in education um, and some of the silly stuff that comes across my desk Restorative practices is the thing that I look at and say, you know what, there's a lot of bang for the buck right there and legitimately a lot of bang for the buck because I'm a pretty skeptical person. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, Jim, yeah. but yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, so yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what? Go. Nope, nope, carry on. You talk about, you can talk about our achievement data. Well, no, you go ahead. <laughs> so that's so sweet of you. So um, the other thing about that middle school is that what happened is, and I, again, we had a long ways to go. We were in turnaround status. Um, but to truly, truly, I would say minus really focusing on like best practices for leadership. Um, the only other thing that we really focused on was like the culture and climate through restorative practices. I mean, that was like our big thing. Um, for the staff. And so when we got our data back on acuity for the year, um, our effect sizes beat the district average. And so, you know, very clearly what 
what that showed us was that when students stopped misbehaving, they started learning. And ultimately that's the reason that we're, that we do what we do, right? Like that's, we want kids to learn in class. Um, and so, you know, very obviously we had to, we had to get a hold of kind of those like behaviors that were occurring so that students were in a place where they were able to learn and that, and that's what we did. Um, and, you know, I think when we're thinking about these highly impacted schools that you're working with, you know, we are always really thoughtful about, you know, what are those trauma-informed practices that we uh, that we can use? And on Colorado's Department of Ed's website, um, they talk a lot about different trauma-informed approaches that schools can use. And very clearly on their, you know, on their list of methods is restorative practices. So, you know, just know that, if you've been taught in, in you know, trauma-informed practices and restorative practices and PBIS, they all fit together. They're not, they're not different things. And in fact, if you're only doing one of those things, like you're doing it wrong. Um, you want to make sure that you have those trauma-informed approaches and you have, you know, the restorative pieces where you're building that connection and you're repairing and you're reintegrating. And you also want to make sure that, and we talked about this a little, um, a little on our first episode, but around making sure that you set clear expectations, um, you want to make sure that you have something around the frame of PBIS. So kids got to know what they're expected to do. And by the way, not just kids, but adults too is what are they expected to do and how are they going to get rewarded for doing the right thing? And very clearly, what do those expectations look like in every part of the building and under every activity? Like, what does it look like? Because your whole goal is to try to take out all of the gray that a lot of times we adults put in situations. You know, if I tell a kid, hey, one of our one of our um, expectations in the school is to be respectful like, what the hell does that look like? Because my definition of respect is different than yours. And so I have to very clearly outline what that looks like in every part of the building um, so that they know what the expectation is so they can actually meet it. Otherwise, we're going to just be sorely disappointed every time, every time that happens. And the nice part is when these all kind of come together um, and we're doing these effectively in, in a building, we are able to hit on those social emotional learning components that we want students to be successful at, which is to be self-aware, to manage themselves, to make good decisions, to have great relationships and to be aware socially. Um, and so I think really thinking of it as you're not choosing between PBIS or RP or trauma-informed practices, like you gotta, you gotta have all of them. And I think, I think that's, that's really, really important. So, oh yeah, these totally mesh together really well. Um, and it is really important to understand that, I mean, our approach has never been that restorative practices is some separate thing, separate from everything else. That restorative practices is just part of the continuum, fits right into social emotional learning, fits right into trauma informed practices. And then it just becomes 
not something that you do, but it's who you are, that your school is a restorative school. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we don't do restorative practices. We are a restorative school and that it's a mindset that we carry with us. It's not something that we do that's separate from this and separate from that. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, those are so important to, points. Uh, to kind of close this session out okay so we'll close with this so give me your best memory of a restorative conference that you had um well this is kind of a tricky one to start out with but um i'm going to anyway um so i had a teacher um who I mean, I'll just say was kind of sort of in that punitive box, um, but she also saw the value in restorative practices and she really, really wanted her relationships with her students to improve. And so she probably was a teacher in the building who asked for conferences the most. And so she would come in with a student that they were in conflict and I would do a restorative conference it would go really well and she would leave and then a week or two later she would say you know I'm having some conflicts with this student would you do a conference she'd come in with this a different student she would leave a couple weeks later she would come in with a different student she would leave um, and I mean she did really well during the conferences and everything but what I was kind of thinking in the back of my mind is that she kind of had a punitive mindset but I wasn't really sure this was when I was first starting to do restorative practices plus I was her administrator and I wasn't really sure how to have that conversation with her but I also really believe in the process a lot and I thought you know at some point going through this process something's gonna happen so one day she came in with a student and we did the conference and the student and the teacher got up to leave and the student walked out of the office and then the teacher shut the door and sat down in the chair across from me and then she started sobbing and I mean like sobbing crying and so I just sat with her and uh, she said it's me and I said yeah, I said I think. Well, and I know that honest, people are probably honest is kind. I mean, know, honest is it kind. It is, and I was very compassionate and empathetic. Um, and I said, "Yeah," and she said, "I can't believe that I've been treating the kids like this." And I just kind of sat in silence and let her process because she was processing like a major, a huge self-realization. I mean, this was not small. And so I just kind of sat and held the space for her. And uh, she said, I don't know if this is right for me, if I should be teaching. And I said, you know, this isn't the kind of choice that you make right now. And I said, I just, I want you to think about it. You can talk to me anytime. And then, you know, I'm, I'm happy to process things with you. So anyway, she left the office and about two weeks later, cause this was like in April. So it was towards the end of the year. And about two weeks later, she came in and she said, I want you to know that I just turned in my resignation. And she said, this is not the right profession for me. Well, what she was teaching was 
IB Diploma Spanish and Spanish 5 and AP Spanish, and so she was a big Spanish person, big Spanish speaker. And uh, so then probably about six months later, I saw a post on Facebook where she travels around the world with like really super rich people, and she's their personal translator when they go on their vacations. And she has the biggest smile on her face. I can't believe it. So <laughs> that is was a really meaningful moment for me and just realizing that restorative practices isn't just about two kids who are in conflict or a teacher and kid that's in conflict, but it's really about a special kind of empathy and listening that I've never experienced in my life that can touch people in a way that you never could anticipate. Mm. Love that. All right, everyone, if you can do us a favor and um, star our podcast, share it, like it, um, give us any feedback of things that you'd like us to talk about, um, we would we would love to hear from you. We'll see you back next time. All right. Goodbye. See you soon.